I'm Gabor Kemenechi, and you are listening to the European Skeptics Podcast, the real ESP experience. listening to the ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast, an independent weekly show set out to bring you news, interesting topics and interviews with people mostly from Europe, building bridges and breaking down language barriers to show the world how active and awesome the skeptical movement is in the region. This is episode 240. I'm your host, Andras Pinter, and joining me for the show is my co-host, Pontus Böckmann. See ya! Hey, Sanesan! Hello! Hello! How are you? Oh, not bad, thank you. No Annika today. No Annika. Oh, she's feeling a bit under the weather, so we gave her the day off. But uh, yeah, well, I hope you can enjoy the episode anyway. <laughs> um, since uh, this is an interview episode that uh, we are interviewing a Hungarian virologist by the name Gabor Kemeneshi, I think it's okay for her to, yeah. to just skip this one. And how have you been? I've been very well, thank you so much. Uh, busy, busy, busy. Very busy. I just sent mm-hmm. the copy to the layout for the for the, the the. I think I mentioned it last week. The magazine that the Swedish skeptics are doing. Mm-hmm. I was. I'm in uh, charge of this particular number. It's a quarterly magazine, so it's about eighty pages. So it's pretty big, mm-hmm. and um, that's been what I've been doing. Mm-hmm. But I, since I don't travel anymore, <laughs> I mean. I occasionally do a short trip, usually within the borders of Hungary. You went to the Baltics not too long ago. Yes, but uh, since then a lot has changed. So mm-hmm. apparently the second wave is upon us. So the borders are closed again and uh, we're not allowed out. First, Hungary started by uh, putting everyone on the red zone. Everyone apart from ourselves. And then it started becoming reciprocal. So, Aha. okay. So you can't come here and we can't send you there. And they are all, yeah, that's right. That's correct. Mm-hmm. But since that seems to be a lingering thing, I decided to take up uh, private teaching again that I used to do a while back. All right. Like tutoring or? Yeah, tutoring. And uh, mostly it's a high school level biology and chemistry. Mm-hmm. That I, I was trained to do. And since everyone is used to online teaching by now and online learning, I'm having a lot of students by now. Yeah, well, that's impressive. It's almost like you uh, think, do you know things? Well, I try to. <laughs> I try my best. It obviously is a lot of work for me, but I, I love teaching. This is what I love about being a tour guide as well, that sharing stuff and just helping people understand things about countries about biological processes and and all that stuff so i i really love doing this it doesn't pay as well as being a tour guide but at least i'm making some money yeah that's good but so there is something else that i don't make very much money with but uh, a new project is emerging a new project of mine you know i'm not busy enough with uh, all the skeptical stuff that i do no of course not <laughs> editing a show doing a show uh being the vice president of the hungarian skeptics no i started a blog complete with um facebook page and a twitter account and um, a youtube channel and it's all in hungarian so 
uh, finally, I decided to do something for the, for the Hungarian audiences under the name Skepman. Mm-hmm. So it's a very simple website that I put together. It's a lot of work, though, but um, I'm, I'm very happy to announce that well, good uh, for you. it's now up and running. Yeah, we'll put that link in the show notes, I'm sure. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Thank you for that. Yeah. Well, it's going to be all in Hungarian, so not much use for those who don't speak or understand Hungarian, but well, still. We can test Google Translate and see how it works. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. Oh, I wanted to, uh, I forgot to mention one thing. I want to give a shout out to uh, the Skeptic Zone and to Richard Saunders, our, our friend over there. Yeah, you appeared on that. Yes, if you listen very carefully on the last episode, this weekend's episode, you may hear a Dr. Pontus appearing in one of the small little sketches that he, he does. Uh, very funny. So I was very happy to be part of that. I've always known that there was something mysterious about you that I couldn't put my finger on. Oh. And now I know what it was. You have some hidden talents and now they're not hidden anymore. So. I, I'm not sure if they are talents either, but it's um, if you want to know about the new new age, you should definitely check out the latest episode of The Skeptic So I have to say, I, I have listened to it and very good voiceover acting. Oh, thank you. So, thank you. Congratulations. <laughs> but without further ado, we have a lengthy interview coming up. I think we should move on to that. Every now and then, we interview someone whose works we think to be of interest to our listeners and skeptics around Europe. Today, our guest is Hungarian virologist Gabor Kemenesi. He's a research fellow at the Virological Research Group within the Sentagotai Research Center of the University of Pécs in Hungary, specializing in viral diseases that spread from animals to humans, also known as zoonosis. He's also a member of Hungary's COVID-19 task force for the research of the virus. And in the last few months, he has become the number one go-to expert in the field for the country's media, trying hard to educate the public, debunk myths and clear misunderstandings along the way. And he agreed to do this interview to do just that for us and our listeners as well. So Gabor, welcome to the show. Welcome, everybody. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, you're very welcome. Oh, that's fine. So we have done an interview together for the Hungarian Skeptic Society, and it was a very well-received interview. Uh, You explained a lot of things to our audiences, and they were very appreciative of that. And you really tour the media outlets of the country with all that you have to share uh, with the public. So your field of expertise happens to be just what seems to have happened with SARS-CoV-2, apparently, the virus causing all the trouble we face today. So... Do we know by now exactly where the virus comes from and how it jumped to humans? Unfortunately, the short answer is no. (laughs) Okay, moving on. (laughs) Unfortunately, we know many things about the virus and uh, Mm -hmm. we knew these things uh, way before it emerged at the end of last year. So uh, this is my field of science. So it's a really interesting uh, thing. We used to say that the decades of pandemics are coming. And it's because human population reached a breakpoint where we are, I would say it uh, uh, simple, there are too many people on the earth and we mm-hmm. are disrupting ecosystems and uh, contacting uh, viruses, animals, and many, many places which were, we were not there before. So that's, that's yeah. this is a simple answer. We know that coronaviruses will come. I know the field of science I do knows that many other viruses can come in the near future. There are some more potent groups of viruses there are there, and there are some less potent groups of viruses. And unfortunately, 
coronaviruses are uh, the real badasses. So, so they are really potent to merge in humans, as we've seen in SARS-CoV in 2003, mm-hmm. and then after 10 years with uh, MERS-CoV, and then mm-hmm. SARS-CoV-2 now. So you can see uh, this is the, the proof of coronaviruses. They are serious and they can cause serious pandemics, serious outbreaks. So it's a really interesting research topic. Uh, by the way, this is exactly my one of my main research topics because right now we are working with bat-related uh, viruses, mainly with coronaviruses now, nearly for 10 years. So it's really interesting field of science. I, I like to do it. And mm-hmm. there are many reasons, but the simple answer is there are too many people on Earth. Mm-hmm. Okay. And why coronaviruses? What makes them so important in, in causing that much trouble? Okay, there are many reasons for some groups of viruses to become potent, mm-hmm. who, to possess outbreak or even pandemic potential. Mm-hmm. Let's stay with coronaviruses. They love to change pieces of their genome called recombination. And this is one reason. And the other reason is there are many, many types of coronaviruses in the nature, mostly in bats, but there are many others in, in rodents and many, several other animals. They can easily jump species. So they have some ability, some special ability, which is not unique to coronaviruses, but they have some special abilities to change rapidly, adapt rapidly. They have proofreading mechanism, so they can fix some mutations if they replicate and they have mm-hmm. some some not necessary mutation they can fix it so so they are really effective in evolving under changing uh, evolutionary pressure and then some species as we've seen now and as we can see many times i'm a researcher so I, I i read the literature before this pandemic i know really well that this kind of species uh, jumping from bats to humans it occurs really frequently, mostly mm-hmm. in hotspots of emerging diseases such as uh, southeastern Asia or, uh, or I don't know, Middle Africa or, or South America. Very crowded places. Yes, crowded places yeah. with huge biodiversity and some other factors, mm-hmm. but these are the main factors. Yeah. Yeah, but it shouldn't. Uh, humans shouldn't be special, right? Why doesn't it jump from bats to other species of animals? Or maybe it does. It's a good point. It does, yes. This problem is not unique for humans. Mm-hmm. It uh, also affects, for example, our household animals. Because we, we have a lot of, I don't know, cattle around the world to, to feed our hamburgers in, in McDonald's and in some places. Like this. It's funny, <laughs> yeah. but it's, it's true. And uh, these jumping events are happening also with these kind of animals. Mm. They are in crowded places. The number, the population of these household animals are big. Um, and this, this is a population effect. So it's simple. So it's like a hotbed for the new mut- mutations that can cause the virus to jump from one species to another. Yes, we establish new interactions between animals or between humans and animals, between household animals and wildlife and things like this. It means uh, novel evolutionary pressure. So Mm -hmm. things in the nature will react. Animals and also their viruses will react. Sometimes they can jump. And that's the that's the easy explanation of this scenario. Mm-hmm. So, but mm-hmm. getting back to, I'm not going to let you off the hook just yet. <laughs> so, what do we know about the origin of SARS-CoV-2? 
Why I'm asking is because what us skeptics usually face among those questions and among those silly ideas is that uh, it was all manufactured and it was done in a lab and it was set on all of us by the Chinese. So if we know that it wasn't manufactured, how do we know that? And what is it that we actually know about how and what could happen? Um, yeah, it's funny. A politician and uh, it's much Oops. easier to understand <laughs> this kind of uh, explanation that it's it mm. made up virus, it's a China virus, than understanding a huge scientific literature, accepting it and uh, communicating it. But yeah. back to the answer, we have tons of proof for natural origin and not a single proof or any indication for made-up scenario. And as I told you before, we know that this will happen and we have seen the indications, we have seen jumping even before with coronaviruses. We knew mm -hmm. that it will come. So there are many indications. We know the, the scenario, how it can emerge in humans. So we know mm -hmm. everything. And at this point, there are two explanations for the origin. Of course, we don't know the exact origin of the virus. We didn't identify yet the exact population of that exact animal, which is the, the reservoir, or I don't know, which is infected with this yeah. kind of virus. But we know for sure that evolutionary terms, it's originating in bats. Why I say this? Because the, clo the most closely related relative of this virus is a bat coronavirus. It's Okay. Uh, 96% uh, homology on nucleotide level, so it's, it's big homology, but it's yeah. not the exactly same virus. It means that this kind of bat, it's some kind of rhinolophus bat, possessing this kind of evolutionary ancestor of this virus. So something happened between them. One scenario is another animal came, which is now likely can be the pangolin uh, yeah. as an intermediate host. So this is the first scenario. The bat coronavirus jumped to this pangolin. Uh, this is a new environment for the virus, so it can change. Maybe a pangolin coronavirus and the, and the bat coronavirus met and they changed some pieces and then here is the human coronavirus. So this is the first scenario. And recently a manuscript came out during the summer, really detailed uh, evolutionary analysis of all known bat-related coronaviruses which are in mm -hmm. this specific taxonomic subgenus. And it seems that the evolutionary origin of this virus is circulating now for decades within bats. Uh, it's not surprising. Something happened some, in some micro environment or somewhere that led to this specific emergence, but we know the ancestors. We see the ancestors. We just don't know enough uh, of them. We didn't identify enough of them, but we see mm -hmm. Most of them, we have data. So we have a lot of genetic data, which indicates, okay. totally indicates the natural origin. Yeah, so um, you mentioned that it, it belongs to this or that genus. So how does the taxonomy of viruses work? And how does this one compares to other coronaviruses we know? And what are those, by the way, that the most well-known coronaviruses? Okay, virus taxonomy is, is massive. <laughs> <laughs> Each group right. of viruses has this has its own uh, regulations for taxonomy and things like this. So individual taxonomic groups, experts, they are deciding on, I don't know, faraway places in conferences, how to name them and how to categorize them and things like this. But <laughs> with coronaviruses, there are um, alpha, beta, 
Delta and Gamma coronavirus is known to science. And this SARS-CoV-2 belongs to beta coronaviruses. And within beta coronaviruses, there are many subgenuses. One of them is the so-called Sarbeco subgenus. It's Sarbeco because it's SARS-like beta coronaviruses. And here mm. is the name SARS-like. So it's been named after SARS coronavirus. Because after SARS pandemic, the first, science revealed a huge diversity of coronaviruses in bats. Mm-hmm. And there are many kind of SARS-like bat coronaviruses in bats all around the world, everywhere. And this group is the so-called Sarbeco coronaviruses, subgenus. And within this subgenus, there are genetic lineages. There is there are many, but there is one the SARS coronavirus genetic lineage, mm-hmm. and here is the SARS-CoV-2 genetic lineage. Uh, and they are different genetic languages. So, so in genetic terms, in nucleotide level, in nucleotide sequence level, you can divide them and you can see individual evolutionary rate of their development and things like this. So, so coronaviruses has uh, their own virus taxonomic regulations. And well, it's a very large group, isn't it? Uh, it's a large group. Coronaviruses. Yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Mm. So how does this compare to uh, the influenza strains that we have, the four main influenza strains and that we usually get uh, on a regular basis? Yeah, uh, we can compare influenza viruses and coronaviruses, but you should know that they are two totally different virus groups. Mm-hmm. They are different in shape, in uh, genetic, in, I don't know, functions. Uh, they behave differently. The genome of influenza viruses are segmented. So the change of influenza viruses, they, they use another ways to change. Coronaviruses has one single piece of genome within the capsid. So they are different in many terms. I used to say they are similar just in two terms. They are both uh, RNA viruses and they can cause not all of them, but some of them can cause respiratory disease and that also. Mm-hmm. So that's basically all the similarities between the two groups. If we want to be simple, yes. But uh, I'm I used to be happy when I say this because you know <laughs> both both of them are, are respiratory diseases, so you can mm-hmm. catch them by respiratory droplet. So if you want to avoid influenza, you must do the same. If you want to avoid COVID and influenza at the same time, you must do the same. So uh, in, in terms of a pandemic and mitigation, it's, it's the same. So I'm happy with this. But if you want to go deep into influenza virus and coronavirus and you want to compare, I know it's trendy now and many people ask me what is the difference and what are the similarities. But it's a useless conversation because they are totally two types of viruses. You have mm-hmm. to do a totally different vaccine a strategy for influenza viruses than to coronaviruses. So so it, uh, it's complex. And okay. So we'll be coming back to the vaccine uh, question later. But I think one question that um, occurs to a lot of us, or a lot of people out there, especially those who, who haven't studied that in a bit more detail, but how does infection happen? So you mentioned that it's somewhat different the way they infect uh, as well. So what is the mechanism of a virus infection? I know it's very basic for a virologist, but it's probably not basic knowledge for a lot of people out there. Okay, in a, in a regular way, uh, if you have a virus, first the virus have to attach one of your cells. It needs Mm -hmm. the lock. It needs a receptor to catch, to hold. Uh, And then somehow the virus gets into your cells and the virus starts to use your cells, the the cells of your body, 
to replicate itself. And then after replication, it spreads throughout your body and infects different organs of your body and makes different symptoms and various consequences in your body. So, and it, this is just like the taxonomy, it is, it's totally different between virus groups. But staying mm-hmm. with, with coronavirus and maybe with influenza virus, they have different receptors, For first of all. They are similar because they are respiratory diseases, which means that you have to inhale the respiratory droplet. And this is the infection gate. Of course, as you can read and as you can hear, COVID can infect many other types of cells. But this stage comes after entering your body. And entering your body goes with respiratory droplet. So basically, it's a respiratory disease. It can infect some of your cells within your upper respiratory uh, system, which has this so-called ACE2 receptor for COVID. This is the receptor. It turned out really quickly. I think it was some weeks or maximum two or three months after the, the outbreak started, pandemic started. So science was really fast and really effective. So we, mm-hmm. we know the receptor, so it's really fine. So the gate for your body is upper respiratory tract. And then as you can read about this kind of clotting and, and stroke and other manifestations of COVID disease, it turned out that some really regular cell types within your body, such as endothelial cells, which are nearly everywhere, within within your uh, blood vessels, the wall of your blood vessels, and many other organs, this guy can infect these type of cells. And in some cases, in some specific cases, it can go through your body and reach other organs and make other manifestations. But basically, it's a respiratory disease because the infection gate is your respiratory tract. And it's the same with influenza, except that influenza uses another receptor and other mechanisms to get into your cell and start this infection cycle. So, uh, yeah, if you want to compare them, we can basically do this. Mm-hmm. You, can, you can hear viruses are really complex. So it takes... Mm-hmm years to fully understand the virus. Uh, we also work with other types of viruses, zoonotic viruses, such as filoviruses, Ebola virus. And I'm sure everybody heard about Ebola viruses. So mm-hmm. uh, they have been discovered, I don't know, 50 or 40 years ago, and we still need to investigate a lot of things. And it will be the same with COVID. But still, the, the science of this seems to be on a fast track, as you mentioned it as well. So like everything happens so fast. And that means that things can be published that soon turn out not to be true or get debunked or, or something. How do you see that as a researcher? So do you see that as a big problem or is it more more of a public communication problem? Or It's a huge problem, but uh, mm-hmm. I don't know. And all the scientific community don't know the, the solution yet. And all of the virologists all around the world are under huge pressure to step forward with this COVID. So everybody right now on this planet who calls himself or herself a virologist, I'm sure he or she works with with COVID right now, Mm. at least partially. So we are under huge pressure. We need to investigate all the aspects of this virus. We have to make vaccines, medicines, and and basic knowledge about the virus. So it's it's big pressure. And the way of science is... Okay, you can find something, but that's nothing until you didn't publish it. 
And here comes the problem, because we are in a huge pressure, we are in a hurry, so we want to publish fast, but publication can't go fast, because you have to upload it, different experts have to check it, if it's true, right, they can ask, they can verify the data, and it have to be repeatable, so yes, at this pandemic, as you also seen, these so-called preprint servers are really trendy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I finish work, I can upload it, you can see it, everybody can see it, and this review process can go on. It's good and bad at the same time, because it's good if I upload something nice, it can be seen, it can be cited, it can be uh, read, it's, it's online, it helps the science. But if somebody uploads something silly, like, uh, I yeah. don't know, COVID in Barcelona last year's March, without any indication or, or, or a strong standing proof, uh, it can cause some problems in the regular media. So I, I don't know the solution for this, but you have seen many examples for this kind of scenario during this pandemic, and it's a big problem. And uh, and the other big problem is when you publish something big, you say something big, and uh, it appears in a leading scientific journal, as it happened uh, last time with the with the Russian vaccine, and we will get back to this, but there are some problems with this, and it's a leading medical journal. So I, I don't know. I am really upset about these cases, and I really don't know mm -hmm. what to say. I can say I want. I, I try to do the best to publish, and I, I hope at least most of scientists all around the world try to do the same, and we will see. But the other problem is I uploaded a, an article in March to a scientific journal, it's a middle-class scientific journal, not the top, but it's a really strong scientific journal, and I'm still waiting to get the reviews. So Oof. it's really slow. And it's about the first wave, the origin yeah. of the first wave and the results <laughs> of the first wave. So thank you. Okay, we are in the nearly in the middle of the second. So yes, okay, it's a bit late. So uh, so there are many problems in many fronts, and uh, I don't know the, the solution. Yeah. I hope this pandemic will, will give some solutions at the end, at least, for this kind of problem. Right. But we know so far that 5G will not cause COVID, right? <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. It, it, it's a really strong example for this problem. Yeah, so yeah. some crazy scientists... Can, can we be sure about that, though? <laughs> I mean... Oh, yeah. <laughs> the problem that he, he wasn't sure about this and he he, were, he was able to publish it. So I, I don't understand, totally don't understand. That was phenomenal. It was phenomenal, yeah. <laughs> oh, my God, yeah. So can or can it not cause COVID-19? You mean 5G? 5G. No, yeah. 5G not. 6G will cause it. <laughs> 6G. You heard it here it's first, under, guys. guys. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's under development. Uh, okay, that's good. All right. <laughs> but if we, if we leave that, co uh, 5G is not the cause. But what does the science say so far? What is the most or are the most uh, important elements of the avoiding infection so what what is the way they are it is transmitted and how can you avoid it the, the most uh, regular transmission pathway is the respiratory pathway so if you wear masks if you follow the hand hygiene rules and try to keep distance from others you can, you can have a good chance to avoid the virus so the the, the three basic rules respiratory uh, safety distance and hand hygiene and that's mm -hmm. all what you can do right now because we don't have the vaccine and we don't have um, good enough medicines just in hospitals maybe but yes so the, at this stage this is the best which you can do mm -hmm. so it's safe to say now that uh, different kinds of masks actually work in trying to mitigate this this issue and avoid transmission to certain levels 
right? Yes, absolutely work. Mm -hmm. The first uh, thing about masks is a regular textile mask can keep safe others from you. Because there are many asymptomatic yes. and presymptomatic infections. We know that it's scientific fact now, so I can say it bravely. And uh, masks work. They can save, they can reduce the effective transmission of the virus in the population. So if many people wear the mask, wears, uh, masks, the, the, the transmission chains will lower and... Uh, the, the pandemic will burn out faster. Today I read a really interesting article about dose dependence because in many viral infections, nearly all viral infections, if you start your infection with a really big dose, your chances are lower to get better or to get it right at the end. And if you catch uh, your first infection with a tiny dose of viruses, you can have really good chances. And it seems... We do, the science don't have uh, the proof right now, but it's a good and strong hypothesis and it can work. So maybe masks also reduces these uh, these starting doses of virus which ah. you can get. Ah, so even if it doesn't reduce it to the zero level, yes, but just by transmitting fewer viruses to the other person, yes, it means that even if the other person gets infected. Exactly. Still, they're not going to be yeah. that bad. Mm. Yeah, the other okay. person has, I don't know, catch uh, 10 virus particles instead of a million or things like this. Yeah. And it, it, it matters. It really matters. Oh, interesting. Okay. It's almost okay. like uh, a vaccination in a way, all right? You, if you get a little of it, you can build your, <laughs> your yeah, immune system. It's, it's kind of like live and wide vaccine. Yeah, it's a yeah. Combo, yeah. yeah. yeah it's a dangerous way of, yeah. of vaccining or getting a vaccine. But Yeah, it's like homeopathy. Uh. <laughs> it's a homeopathic vaccine, mm. right? But when we're talking about transmission, uh, respiratory transmission, and what the masks can help us avoid... Uh, are we talking about droplets or aerosols? First of all, what's the difference? And can it be s safe to say that it works for both? Yeah, we have to speak about both. Mm -hmm. As you heard that right now, aerosol transmission and droplet transmission, both are proven. Okay. They can work. Uh, mostly droplet transmission works, as we can see on the epidemiological data. So... If you keep distance, you have good chances. But if you wear masks, you can reduce all kind of droplets which you emit from yourself. So including the big droplets and the smaller. And here comes the aerosol, which is around 10 microns and can mm -hmm. uh, stay in the air for a long time. So that's the problem with aerosols. So if you go to a closed place, I don't know, a supermarket or something, and somebody was not careful enough and sneezed in the air or, uh, I don't know, uh, made these tiny droplets, it can stay there for hours. Mm -hmm. So okay. if you want to keep yourself safe, then here comes the professional masks, the FFP3 and uh, KN90, 95, uh, and you can avoid getting these aerosol particles. That's the professional mask. But right now, okay. I think... I still many countries have shortages of these kind of masks. That's why all of the experts are recommending the textile masks. So keep the professional masks for the, the medical staff. So like a double double layer textile mask. Yeah, or can three do layers. Job. Yeah, it can yeah, do okay. the job. But if you want to keep yourself so safe or keep your mother safe and he or she goes into the supermarket or some closed places, I, I used to give my mother an FFP mask if she goes to, I don't know, to a doctor or mm -hmm. supermarket okay. or something. Of course, I asked her not to go, but uh, yes, <laughs> that's another problem and another topic. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So... We're talking about droplets, but when we're talking about aerosols, there are good indicators of how your mask is not 
airtight, right? So like if you're sitting next to someone whose perfume you can actually smell, then it means that the aerosols can probably go in and out <laughs> without an issue, even though you're wearing a mask. But I'm assuming, and correct me if I'm wrong, that in aerosol transmission, you can still get a lower number of actual viruses that can be transmitted than with a droplet. Is that safe to assume? It depends on the dose, but basically, yes. The answer is yes. But if somebody sneezes a big or something, uh, you can make, uh, I don't know, Mm. big amount of droplets. And there are also droplets, I mean, with a uh, yeah, huge yeah. amount of viruses. So it, it is dose dependent and science don't know the, the exact dose for individual people. So we don't know the dose of infection of the virus. We have some indications, but we don't know the exact dose. So I can tell you right now that a simple sneeze or a simple breath, uh, which is better or how much better or worse i don't know we don't know yet science don't know yet but it's a big question and uh, uh, until the answer everybody should wear a mask and simple yeah and try to keep distance yeah yes yes exactly going back to compare this to the the flu uh, do we know if this has the potential of becoming a seasonal thing like flu is or is do we know that there are many indications towards the seasonality of this virus this is another thing that we have to see to answer. So we need data. We have to we have to finish this season to see what will happen. But all other human coronaviruses, which which are all the four coronaviruses which are circulating in the planet right now, they have seasonality. Mm-hmm. So science assumes that uh, this COVID will have the same, mm-hmm. uh, but it depends on many many things: immunization, vaccine. Uh, uh, pandemic mitigation measures, many, many things. This year, uh, you should know that the influenza season will finish in September in the, the southern part of the globe, which will come to the northern. And this year, they skipped the influenza season because of uh, pandemic mitigation for COVID. So that was what we were talking oh, yeah, about at the beginning. If you, yeah. if you avoid uh, COVID, you avoid also other respiratory diseases. So they skipped. There wasn't a number of cases of influenza in the southern part of the globe, and we expect the same in the northern. But back to the seasonality, yeah, we expect COVID to be seasonal, but there are many factors which can fight this seasonality because it's not a common cold, so we have to do something against it. It can alter this kind of seasonality, but we will see. We will see. We have to see. But does that mean that it's probably here to stay? Even if we get a vaccine, even if we try everything, it's probably going to stick around as influenza does? I'm sure it will stick around. It already went too far, so you can't get rid of this kind of virus. It's a respiratory virus causing a silent infection, so it can go very fast, really fastly, Mm -hmm. really far. So you, we, we can fight it at this stage, which we can do. It's a, it's a slow uh, mitigation and slow fight with vaccine, with, with basic pandemic mitigation, with other strategies. And we have to believe that somehow immunization, vaccination, and I don't know, mitigation will deal with this virus. And maybe in, I don't know, some years, it's hard to predict, but maybe it can get uh, easier to catch this COVID. We have seen, we see right now the reinfections, the real reinfections, the first mm-hmm. ones. And there are good data and uh, worse data, but the data which have been published and peer reviewed and reviewed, uh, it says, uh, I think it's a good scenario. So you catch it and your, your cell immunity reacts and you can 
uh, get over it uh, with better chances. So, yeah. Yeah. But it's really scary what you're saying. You're saying basically that we will not go back to what we considered normal just a year ago again. I'm not sure about this. We can go back to normal, but in another way. So we have weapons to fight this virus and we have more and more weapons as time passes. So we will have the vaccine, I'm sure. Uh, if something happens with, I don't know, one of the vaccines, then other will come. So there are many, many vaccine projects. So I'm really optimistic about vaccines. So we can use vaccines for, I don't know, for old uh, people and for chronic disease people. Mm. And then immunization will go on, mitigation will go on. We, we know much more about the virus, uh, basic things about the virus. We will have medicines so we can fight it and then live our life because we have to live our life. So we have to deal with this situation. Yeah, I I don't know. We will see, but I'm, I'm optimistic. I'm always optimistic. Uh, because we we can do nothing else, so we are in this situation and we have to deal <laughs> yeah. with this. So okay. uh, everybody has to be optimistic. We can all commit suicide and and <laughs> just yeah. say that we give up, or we can be optimistic. Yeah, you're right. But it's a good you mentioned vaccines on several occasions by now. But one thing is is very difficult to understand. I think for for those who are not familiar with how uh, viruses work and how virus infections work in detail, is that if reinfections can occur. That means that uh, long-lasting immunity does not develop in our systems. So how can then a vaccine generate such an immunity even for for just a shorter period we've uh, heard about a lot of cases and it seems to be now established really that um, antibodies uh, seem to disappear from the system after a couple of months time only so that definitely wouldn't be long lasting enough for a herd immunity to be achieved on a general population so how can we be optimistic about a vaccine if that is the case so why is a vaccine different that's my question we can be the, the, the short answer is we can be surely optimistic about vaccines because okay. immune, the immune system is really complex. So mm-hmm. everybody heard that the antibody level goes down really fast and uh, it's not, oh my God, it's not enough for herd immunity. It's more complex. We have mm-hmm. the antibody response for viral infections and many other infections, but let's stay with viruses. So you have the antibody response. It depends on the virus, what kind of and what pattern it, it follows. But we also have cell immunity, and this is the key because there are many types of immunity. There are some kind of uh, vaccines which gives you a lifelong uh, safety and you never will be infected again. And there are other types of vaccines which you have to get each year, like influenza virus vaccine. And uh, it depends on the virus the natural infection of the virus, what type of immune reaction it starts, it kicks off. And the task of vaccines is mimicking the infection without the danger of the whole virus. Mm-hmm. So you give your uh, system, your, your, your body something which shows, hi, this is the virus, let's learn this virus. And if you meet the really bad guy, the white type virus, you won't have the disease. You can be infected in some cases, and that will be the scenario most likely within with, with COVID. So you can be infected, <laughs> but you won't have the disease. You won't have serious mm-hmm. disease because your body knows the enemy, already knows the enemy. It kicks off the antibody level by cell immunity. It uh, spreads a lot of antibodies in your blood, and it, it can deal with the virus more easily. And that is the task of the vaccine right now with COVID. 
So don't worry about mm-hmm. antibody levels. It will uh, work because there are many indications that spike protein is uh, is a good vaccine candidate. Uh, many vaccines are now in phase three and uh, I'm optimistic about vaccines. So expect vaccines as they can teach your body to recognize the enemy later on. So it's, it's good. You, you mentioned phase three. So that's something we hear. We hear phase one, phase two. Can you go through... And, and and tell us how do you develop a vaccine and what are those phases what are the major steps the challenges and problems yeah vaccine development can be divided into two major phases the first phase is the laboratory phase when you make the vaccine candidate guys like me making this kind of stuff in laboratories it's more scientific than medical part so you figure out something oh my oh yeah this spike protein looks like a good immunogenic uh, part of the virus let's try it in vitro in flasks in uh, tissue cultures wow it it uh, shows something promising you go on with animals uh, mice hamsters and then if it's good you go on with monkeys and if it's fine and you have results, you publish the results, it's been reviewed, it's been documented, it's, uh, it's, uh, everybody can see in the scientific world, verify, you can give it to the clinical part. And clinicians can start to organizing the test phases, clinical test phases, which means they, will test, they start to test it in human beings, for, first for safety and secondary for uh, effectiveness. And phase one and two is mostly about safety. So you give the vaccine candidate to humans, they check the reactions, they check the doses, the optimal doses, and they check if the immune system reacts and how it reacts. Is it what we expected? Is it what we saw in animals? Something is different or not? So if it goes well, then they can move on to phase three when they give it to tens of thousands of people and they compare it with the placebo and they check if the vaccine really works on the street when they meet the virus and they get infected. What will be the reaction? Maybe something really rare reaction turns out and then all the vaccine project goes to cash. So yeah, Mm -hmm. and after it passed phase three, they can think about uh, building the capacity to produce the vaccine. Of course, everything is available for scientific community and everybody. So you can see it in a normal vaccine development, except the Chinese and Russian vaccines. But yeah, so you can see every step and you can check it. Uh, anybody can check it. So I think this is the strongest part of vaccine development, that it's transparent. So a normal vaccine development is transparent. So nothing can happen because if there is a political pressure or something, a scientific community will will check it and will see it. They will see that that figure is not good. We can't repeat this ex- uh, this experiment. Something something not seems to be good, which is now the case with the Russian vaccine. So I will see what will happen. But there are some major questions about the Russian Russian vaccine. Result. Well, why would a Russian uh, vaccine be politically b- b- pushed or pressured that that kind of development? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Especially if they call it Sputnik. Yeah. <laughs> Sputnik 5, yeah. Sputnik, yeah. Nice name. Uh, but I think it's a, a pretty good example of what you're saying, uh, what happened recently in the United States, that when Trump announced that by October the vaccine might be ready for deployment, and uh, then the developers came together and said, oh, oh no, 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 we're not going to rush 
touch anything. We're going to make sure that the science is right and it's safe and it's effective. Otherwise, we're not going to put it on the market, which is very unusual from those those companies. But I think it's the only way we can we can do this. Otherwise, the public distrust will be so high and so great that the uptake will not reach the needed levels. But it, Obviously, there might be a couple of hiccups and, and issues occasionally with uh, the developing a vaccine. But what are the ways that the process can be accelerated with, without taking too much risk of it not being effective or safe? Yes. First answer is money and time. So okay. hundreds of thousands of uh, scientists are working on making vaccine candidates. So there mm -hmm. is a huge uh, human capacity human brain capacity, laboratory capacity. There are um, alliances of laboratories to facilitate the research. So I don't have to wait for a new, I don't know, equipment. I can send the next stage to another lab and they can follow up and it's well organized. There is money for this. This is the first reason. And then the clinical part, also money. And then they can put on some phases to each other. So you can see that in many cases, phase one and two are made in parallel. So they start not with 10 people, for example, the first time in phase one, but with, I don't know, 50 people and call it phase one and two. And they not just checking the safety, but checking the dose and which are okay. used to be checked in phase two. And the most important and which makes it really rapid is that during all these trials, they are building up the factory capacity for the vaccine. Mm -hmm. They don't wait for the vaccine to they be ready. They don't wait, yeah. Normally to, they to have to wait okay. because it's, this is the biggest uh, amount of money which have to be spent. You have to build a factory for that specific vaccine candidate. But now governmental money is injected in this whole process uh, from the US, from European Union and uh, other big places, and they can do this. If something turns out during phase one, two or three, uh, it goes to nothing. So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There was a recent uh, news item about uh, an Oxford trial together with AstraZeneca. They were developing a vaccine and they had to stop it because there was an adverse reaction with one of the participants. How problematic is that? Is that alarming or is that just normal that happens? That's the normal way of vaccine development. But now the media awareness is, is much higher than normal. And I checked it before our interview. They went on with the vaccine development, which means that they couldn't find any relatedness of that illness and the vaccine. Hmm. And as I told you... Yeah, what the, what the, the media calls the mystery illness. <laughs> yeah, in, in, in a normal vaccine development, which is the Oxford vaccine development, as I saw until this stage, and right now it's still transparent. So you can see all the details. So they investigated carefully the related the possible relatedness of this this neuroinvasive manifestation and the vaccine, and they found nothing. So in Britain, they went on with the with the phase three trials, and in the rest of the countries, they will, I'm sure. So, and we will hear the details soon mm -hmm. about this this incident. But it's the normal way of vaccine development, and it's good like this because if something turns out and it's suspicious that it may have some relatedness to the vaccine, they have to stop and they have to throw it away. The whole process. So, and it's normal like this. But transparency is really important, and I'm. I believe that it's really important to communicate vaccines, mm -hmm. all the details to the public, the scientific details, the clinical trial details. Somehow it's hard to, to 
to communicate this kind of uh, uh, pure scientific stuff, but it 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 have to be done now at this stage. So I don't know good experience for the whole scientific community how to how to communicate this type of of research and clinical trials. Mm-hmm. So we're not gonna gonna act like um, journalists who always ask the question: When do you think the vaccine will be ready? The first vaccine that can be deployed. <laughs> but uh, the problem is that until then we really don't have much else to try to avoid that. But there are some things that circulate the media as well. And one of them is the cytokine storm. Mm-hmm. So I don't think that is really well explained uh, in the media while it is still circulating like crazy. So everyone talks about that. So what is it? And does it happen in other uh, viral infections as well? Or it's very specific to COVID? So what do we know? have to know about that? Viruses are simple. Of course, for me, I'm a virologist. I love them and they are so, so, so <laughs> difficult and so complex. But basically, they are simple. So there is this theory that uh, people are dying of COVID, but they don't die of COVID because COVID was just diagnosed in this, uh, this people and it's not a proof. Yes, it is. Yeah, it's underlying issues, medical issues that they had. Why it is a proof? Because viruses are simple. So virus don't kill the host directly. Mm-hmm. Induces uh, reactions, cascade, mostly immune reactions. And basically your own immune system is turning against you or trying to kick off the virus infection and makes many damage which you can't can't bear and uh, which leads to to serious manifestations and exactly that that is what is happening with cytokine storm so at serious manifestation of this uh, covid disease and this is the most serious which you can see in the news this is the this is because the cytokine storm so your immune system is hyperactivated against the virus attack and tries to do something recruiting uh, immune cells making a lot of molecules making uh, uh, inflammation in certain places of your body and finally making disruption and damage in several organs and uh, leading to multiple organ failure and uh, serious consequences and finally mortality so uh, cytokine storm is your own body's response to the viral infection and there are some basic molecules which are kicking it off like the il6 and there are some more of these molecules pnf alpha and others but il6 is interesting because you could hear that tocilizumab and other medicines are really good seem to be really good in treating COVID. Uh, yes, they are treating COVID by silencing these kind of cascades in your body. And mm-hmm. if doctors give these kind of medicines in the right time, in the exactly right time, they can cut this kind of cascade and get a better outcome for patient. So it's really complex, but basically your own body making it. Yeah. Mm. So, so if we go on and look at what will have happen so sort of after this, when we hopefully have at least come to terms with this pandemic and can go back to normal, will this experience have a long lasting effect on our awareness of viruses in the public, but also maybe in the, in the scientific community? I'm sure. Uh, if you check history, you can see history of humanity. You can see that uh, pandemics always had immediate and long-term uh, responses from people. I don't know, many things happened because of pandemics. And I'm sure that the same will happen all around the world. 
I really hope that public awareness against viruses will be better. Mm -hmm. Communication will be better. Basic understanding about this kind of problem, which is highly related to climate change and, and uh, things like this, which we deal day by day with, this is highly connected to climate change, this kind of problem of pandemic. Uh, so I hope it will integrate in people's mind and they will integrate it to their basic life and by knowledge. So they will know that, yes, they exist and it, a new virus emerges. It's nothing terrible, but uh, we have to deal with it. We have to fight it and we have to do something. So don't be sad. Just uh, try to understand the things which are happening around you and uh, the world will be better. And uh, I think that this will be a good experience for the whole, whole planet. Oh, some optimism there at the end. That's good. Yeah, and I think that is the best closing remark. <laughs> and uh, you're doing a lot to do your part in this communicational task that you just mentioned. Hungarian audiences can hear you, see you, uh, read your interviews and, and all that stuff. And I really appreciate what you do to raise public awareness about it. And uh, that kind of optimism is what we need because people usually say that they don't want to fear. And you sometimes even mention that, that it's not fear that we need. We don't need to fear, but be aware and be ready to do whatever it's it's necessary to avoid. Yeah, exactly. It's not the same. Yes, 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 exactly. Yeah. And I really appreciate you coming on this show and uh, talking to us and our listeners um, about this as well. So thank you very much for making your mission international now. <laughs> and uh... <laughs> thank you very much for inviting me. It was it was really nice. <laughs> That's right. So Gabor Kevinashi, thank you very much again. Take care and wish you all the best. Goodbye. Thank you. Goodbye. All right, that was fun. Yes. And very informative. Great. And it it hit me actually that this is an example where if we at the ESP, maybe we can contribute a little bit to the world. And when we yeah. pick up a person who is, as I understand it, fairly well known now in Hungary, yeah. but nobody else outside of Hungary has heard of him. And he's such a good uh, science communicator. He knows all there is to know about, or all that we do know so far, yeah. about this virus behind the pandemic we have. So I, I think it's, uh, I was uh, rather good, proud of having Gabor on the show this week. Yeah, me too. And uh, this was the second time for me to interview him. And uh, I really enjoyed the first one. We uh, recorded a very lengthy video interview for the Hungarian Skeptics. And we released it as a podcast as well, mm -hmm. just the audio. But uh, with the video, I added a couple of um, graphs as well and uh, some figures to make whatever he was talking about to, to make it visible and, and visualized. And, and it, it worked really well and it was very well received. Great. But he's amazing in communicating all that. And uh, the funny thing is that he was not very well known before the pandemic mm -hmm. but since the pandemic because this is his area of expertise he's become the go-to guy and all the new media outlets ask him for interviews uh, or mostly him so i think in nine out of ten cases he's the one that they interview and he does a very good job and he's become a bit of a star in hungary and i think very well deservedly so mm -hmm. Great. So he's just an amazing communicator. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, re I really appreciate what he's he does. And uh, I appreciate you 
joining me and us uh, today, Pontus. I wouldn't miss it for the world, Andras. <laughs> Good. And I'd like to thank our listeners as well for tuning in. Please keep doing so. And uh, until next week, when we come back with a regular segmented episode. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Peace out. This has been your ESP experience. The show is produced and recorded by the ESP.eu. Join us again next time, but until then, please send your feedback, comments or death threats to info at the ESP.eu. We would also love to hear your ideas and suggestions regarding future episodes as well as news from your country of residence that might interest others across the continent. If you have a local event or organization to promote, please don't hesitate to let us know, as we are more than happy to help. All music in the program was written and performed by Keisha J. Gray and George Shrub and is used with their permission. Please check out our webpage at theesp.eu, follow us on Twitter at espodcast underscore eu and like us on Facebook. I don't know how you can believe. <laughs> All right. So. <laughs> you, what? you or me? <laughs> what? What? You? Me? What? Oh, okay. Hey, do. Hey, do. I mean, hey, do. I don't know. They never say goodbye anymore. So, bye bye.